Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome again to the N. Lauren podcast series. I'm Stan Crook. I'm your host for the podcast series, and I'm chairman and CEO of of N. Lauren. Uh, we're delighted today to have uh, a colleague and friend, uh, Jeff Carroll, join us. Jeff is an associate professor of neurology at the University of Washington Medical School, and he has served as a consultant um, to Enlorm since uh, you know the first day we opened our doors, and uh, invests a great deal of time and energy in helping us understand whether the applications that we receive on a, any particular day, whether that application is something that we can develop an ASO for or, or and, and treat that patient or not. So, Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And um, and so, uh, Jeff, just, just to begin, um, uh, I, I think you're a West Coast boy uh, from, uh, I I should say conception, not inception, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, born and raised, let's say. Yeah, uh, in, in Washington. Yeah, that's right. So I grew up just, uh, I was born just south of Kent. There's a town, or just south of Seattle, a town called Kent, um, and grew up there my whole life. Um, I, you know, my family didn't have a ton of money or anything, so we didn't travel very much. I was very kind of insular before I, before I you know, got out and saw the world later in life. Yeah, and, and learn you may want to just stay home. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, once you grow up in the Pacific Northwest and you go everywhere else, you think, mm, yeah, yeah, everything is a mission to get back home. Makes it, uh, yeah. And um, and you're from a large family. Are you, uh, is, is it a really close-knit family? You stay in touch with all your siblings and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's six kids in my family and we were all, you know, 18 months apart or so. So we, we grew up very much in each other's hair. You know, my family, you know, we didn't have a ton of money and we had a relatively, you know, we had a nice house, but a small house. And we grew up, two of my sisters, we always joke, shared a closet, although in retrospect, it wasn't actually a joke. <laughs> they lived sort of a modified walk-in closet and some bunk beds. And I always had, you know, I've actually literally never had my own room, I realized. So, you know, maybe someday when I retire, I'll get my own bedroom. That's my, my life goal. Um, but yeah, so basically we had a small, you know, us being so close in age, we got along really well and stay in touch. I just saw a bunch of them. So yeah, being close to the family is great and, and still very much involved with all of them. That's great. And then um, um, you went to high school and from there, maybe by choice, maybe not such a great, not so much by choice, you you entered the army. Is that right? Yeah, I was I was very much not the uh, going to join the army. You know, if you pick the kid in high school who's going to go in the army, you know, who was doing ROTC or something, I was I was the opposite of that. So <laughs> my my best friend and I were making some poor life decisions and um we're kind of we were having a cigarette on his mom's porch and and uh, he turned to me and he said i think the most punk rock thing i could do is join the army so he had this whole idea that he would kind of get away from his you know his kind of life choices that were sort of not in the best uh <laughs> in the best path uh was by just resetting the whole thing and joining the army and I, I, you know i i was kind of in a similar place and I always joke that it wasn't exactly like, you know, go to the army or go to jail, but it was, you know, in that neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, it, it actually was great for me. So he and I joined together. Um, classic story. We joined together. They have this thing in the army called the buddy program. And we thought we'd be together all through our first duty station. The first day off the bus, he went left and I went right. Never served together again. Uh, we stayed in touch, but uh, weren't together. Um, but nevertheless, like the, the army was great for me. I, I got in shape. I got some discipline. 
you know, people stopped taking my crap and just made me do stuff. Um, and it was, it was a huge help for me. So, um, despite it's my inauspicious beginnings, I guess it ended up being a really, really good grounding for me before I decided what to do with my life. Well, that's great. Although it sounds, sounds frankly insane to me, but okay. dokie. <laughs> oh, I'm disappointed to hear that Stripes isn't for real and you don't get to go with your buddy when you join, but okay. No, no. Uh, uh, and then you served in Kosovo. Yeah. So in 1998. Were you in a combat unit or? Yeah. So at that time, I, I actually had been stationed in Germany. So I spent three years in a European. I was in a, a state. I had joined the army to get technical skills. And so I was a communications guy nominally, but I kept getting assigned to combat arms units. So I was in an infantry battalion for a year and in, in, here in the US. And then I was in Germany and Kosovo for three years in a tank battalion. So even though I didn't want to do all this GI Joe stuff, I ended up in these units where I was running around tanks and fixing radios and doing all that kind of stuff, you know, that was much more army like than I wanted. And then when I was in that tank battalion in Germany, that was, this was kind of the tail end of the Balkan war. And, and Kosovo was the last place where there was this kind of threat and genocide. And there was some really bad stuff happening. And the US was bombing Serbia to kind of try to get the Serbians out. And my unit was actually in Germany. And we were, we had a mock-up of the border and we were running the border over and over again in case the, you know, the, the air war didn't work. And then ultimately the air war did work. And we went back in as peacekeepers. So I spent the turn of the millennium in Kosovo <laughs> in a, in a sea hut, which is what we called these like plywood huts that the Navy would build for us. Um, so I'll never forget where I spent the millennium. Well, um, at least you didn't have to worry about the computers going down, I guess. <laughs> no, it's true. No, I had all the guns. So it wouldn't have mattered if they did. It was yeah. fine. Well, it sounds, uh, it sounds interesting. And um, of course, um, your life changed a lot. Um, probably, as I understand it, sometime while you were in Kosovo or while you were in the army. Uh, once you once you tell our listeners about that. Yeah. So uh, right just before I deployed to Kosovo, which was great timing, uh, I found out that my mom um, had was not only at risk for a disease called Huntington's disease, but in fact that she was sick, and she was actually to the point where the reason it came up is she was not able to live independently anymore. My parents were split up. And so, you know, the family suddenly had this thing to take care of. And my wife who had been married to for a few months at that point, you know, my dad sat uh, her and I down in the kitchen and said, you know, Jeff, your mom has Huntington's disease. And I freaked out, which means that on some level, I must've known what Huntington's disease was. It's a terrible autosomal dominant, you know, f f fully penetrant fatal disorder. Um, that my grandmother had ultimately died from. But my family had told me when we were young that we didn't have to worry and that it skipped a generation. There was some story that was not correct science that made my generation not worry about it. We thought we were fine. My wife literally didn't know what it was because I never told her because I didn't think I was impacted. But now all of a sudden, my mom was sick. All six of us were at risk of um, 50% chance of inheriting this disease. And my wife was suddenly getting a crash course and you know my family. Um, and so I spent Kosovo, I really just tried to, you know, I was on the internet, it was terrible then, I mean, still pretty bad, but the, the resources were awful. And so it was in Kosovo that I sort of thought, well, you know, when I get out of the army, because uh, I always knew I'd get out after my four year tour that I'll, I'll go get a, in my undergrad, I was, I thought I'd go to do philosophy and then do a law degree or something. I don't know what my plan was exactly, but I thought, well, I'll take some biology courses when I get out. And and that was where that kind of resolve came from, of that frustration in Kosovo of not being able to find out any good information. And what was out there was really terrifying. Yeah. So just to step back for a minute, Huntington's disease, I think 
probably most people know of it. Of course, Woody Guthrie was the most uh, famous uh, sufferer of Huntington's disease. And it's a member of the of a disease family called triplet repeat uh, diseases. And, and what that refers to is, as you know, the genetic code is three letters. And for reasons that are not really fully clearly worked out biochemically, there are certain combinations of genetic letters that are sticky. Uh, and the enzyme that's responsible for making new copies of DNA, uh, DNA polymerase, um, gets stuck. And it's like a typewriter going back over and over again, typing the same three letters. And, and as a result, then uh, over generations and generations, the length of those repeat segments grows. And at some point, they become large enough that either the RNA or the protein that's produced, or maybe both, can cause significant um, death of neuronal cells, mm -hmm. and in particular, neuronal cells. And as a result of all that, then patients undergo dementia, they become, they can become psychotic, frankly, psychotic, they have movement disorders, and they rapidly progress uh, after the symptoms arise to, to death. Mm -hmm. uh, um, is that a fair summary of what you face? Yeah, when of course I didn't know all that then, sort of do yeah, now, but you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that was you know, and, and the scary part of that became clear to me. At, you know, the same with every family in this situation. You know, you learn the terrible stuff first, and you know, my mom was sick, and you know, her relationships with other family were fragile and already, and, and so when you throw on this progressive, especially the irritability and the rages and and stuff like that that are common to people. With many kinds of, of progressive dementia, I mean, it's 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 very debilitating for families, even in the you know in the quote early stages of the disease, which is ultimately fatal, as you say. Yeah, it certainly is, and it's you know it's it's and every person who has to deal with knowing that he's at risk deals with it in a different way. Right. Um, but before we leave the disease, there's a term that I want to introduce, and that's called anticipation. Mm -hmm. And all that refers to is that every new generation tends to accumulate more of these triplet repeats. And the longer the triplet repeat length, the earlier the disease is likely to happen and the more severe the disease. That's right. And so as, as the idea that it would skip a generation is particularly um diabolical because it does the opposite every right. generation the risk gets worse right and um and so let's talk about that you're in kosovo you learn it over time you're able to figure out that this is not a good thing at all right how how do you how do you manage through that jeff yeah i mean i you're exactly right everyone's different you know and 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 for very good reasons, different people cope different ways, healthy, you know, and, and for me, like, I'm a little bit obsessive. And so like, I was going to be thinking about it anyway. And I was fortuitous that, you know, I had a reasonable brain that like, wasn't being accounted for yet. I wasn't doing anything with it yet. And so I had had time to decide at a, at a sort of a, you know, inflection point in my life of like, what do I do? And I thought, well, I'm going to be thinking about this anyway, I might as well 
try to work on it a little bit. I, I didn't have any idea. I'd never met a scientist. I didn't know that people did science and got paid for it. I, I had no clue that that was a job. All I thought was like, I want to know more. I, I'm starting my undergrad. I'll take a few biology classes. I had none of the prerequisites. And uh, the, the, the nice woman at the registration was like, you can't possibly take these classes because you haven't taken anything since like ninth grade. And I, I talked my way into it. I got good at that in the army. And I was like, okay, well, I'll take responsibility. And I'll, I had a bad first year, but, it, but I loved it. And everything I learned about biology in particular, I just found it really fascinating. Um, and at the same time, I found out that um, a guy called Michael Hayden, who's who's a key you know player with Lorem, he's on the board, and I know a longtime colleague and friend of yours, Dan, who was ultimately my PhD supervisor, just happened to have his lab in Vancouver. So it's another one of these like if if all of these lucky things hadn't lined up, there's no way I would have been doing science. But even as an undergrad, Michael's quite a famous figure, especially in UBC, and so as people learned that I was interested in Huntington's, they sort of said, oh, you know, science people and disease people said, oh, you know, there's this great HD lab here. And ultimately, um, ultimately I met Michael, although it, I met him in kind of a funny way, which is that at UBC, when I was an undergrad, I, I underwent predictive testing. So Huntington's is um, 100% penetrant dominant disease, meaning that if you have the mutation, you're gonna get it eventually. And if you don't, you won't, as you said, it doesn't skip a generation. Um, and so you can undergo what's called predictive testing, which is when you don't have symptoms, but you want to know if what your fate is ultimately. And I, once I knew that was a possibility, I couldn't imagine not knowing. It's just me. And so I signed up for predictive testing as soon as I could. Um, and I happened at Michael's clinic, although just fortuitously, for some strange reason, I, through luck of the draw, didn't get Michael, who do, does almost all of the predictive tests. I got one of his um, colleagues. And uh, unfortunately learned that I carry the same mutation as my mother and so ultimately would expected to have the same kind of onset and prognosis as her. Um, and my wife tells the story that I, I asked him for, for a job, which is basically I said, you know, cool, like I want to help. Could, could you help me? Could you introduce me to Michael? And, and he did. And so I think a couple months later, I still have on my calendar. I, I went and met with Michael and, and laid this out for him and said, listen, I, you know, I'm just going to be thinking about this anyway. I want to be involved. Um, and to his credit, he said, listen, you can do anything you want. This doesn't have to define you. But he also said, if this is what you want to do, I I'm happy to support it. And he let me come in as undergrad and, you know, circulated around projects and kind of just shadowed people and just never left, like transitioned from my bachelor's to my PhD um, and stayed there for a long time. So, you know, throughout, like, the news has been bad, but like turning towards it has led to like really exciting things that I don't think I would have ever been capable of if I hadn't had these challenges, you know? One of the really difficult decisions to make with an inherited genetic disease is do you have children? Mm, huge. And um, how, how did you and your wife work through that horrible dilemma? Yeah, it, it was horrible. I mean, so we, we underwent, so we, again, lucky, we, we, we got underwent predictive testing in Vancouver, which follows like the best standards of predictive testing. So we had, we had a delay built in, we had counseling on either end, we had a genetic counselor help us talk through issues. It was, you know, the gold plated, you know, kind of experience you want people to have. And as part of that, the genetic, the, the counselors asked us, do you want to have kids? And I, I said, no, immediately. And my wife was like, oh, well, I guess, guess we're not having kids. And so that was it. I just, I shut her off because I, I couldn't imagine, you know, wanting to do it. And as, as life went on and my grandfather, who was a very beloved figure in my life, he passed away at glioblastoma in his eighties. And he was a, 
a huge figure for me. And when he died, I started thinking about legacy and kids, you know, the way you do. And at that time, there was this new thing called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD, which is basically like in vitro, it is in vitro fertilization, but at the, at the two or eight cell stage, a cell is grabbed and genetically tested. And you can basically tell which embryos are affected and which aren't. Um, it was experimentally done a lot. There had not been any putty doing it just commercially, just like off the street in Vancouver at that point. There was a clinic that wanted to try it, um, and we pursued it. And we have two kids who are now 17-year-old twins who, you know, went from 50% chance of if we'd done it naturally to, you know, pretty m close to zero, um, which, which is how we dealt with it. But not everybody has, you know, the education, the resources, the money you know, all those things to make that happen. So it's, it's a really hard, hard decision for families. Yeah. And is, is that procedure now available commercially for, for folks? Much more widely. And it's, it's, it's improved a lot. So I've had folks, friends go through it more recently. And when we did it, they had the embryos in the, you know, in the room in the incubator and you have to decide on the spot, you know, you've got we, so we had two embryos and they sort of said, you've got to go or, or not. Now they have, they freeze the embryos and so you can do another cycle and it's more calm. And it, there's a lot of improvement and it's, it's great. And, I, and something I hope a lot of people from genetic families all think about doing. Yeah. And, you know, genetic diseases come in two forms, inherited and de novo are inherited and a bunch of bad luck. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and for inherited diseases that are, uh, as um, well inherited as something like Huntington's, and there are a good many triplet disease uh, yeah. uh, diseases. Uh, it's something that I think probably helps many, many people make, you know, these life decisions. That uh, obviously you also have to weigh your ability to be the wage earner and the caregiver and all that at some point in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the reasons, you know, I, I've been very open about this stuff just because it's my personality, but also, you know, I, I've, you know, I've met multiple people now who've showed me pictures of their kids after I gave a talk at the Huntington Disease Society of America one year and mentioned PGD and someone told their kids and their kids. So it's, you know, it, it's part of my mission to try to let people know there's options for families. Well, uh, as I um, maybe many people know, at Ionis, we have had a major program in Huntington's disease, and we're developing uh, actually a couple of ASOs, but the lead ASO um, is, um, you know, have completed a very large set of clinical trials, almost 800 patients, followed for about 59 weeks as a minimum with our Huntington ASO, and now Roche is going back and doing an additional clinical trial, which is usually pretty much the way it has to go. First, clinical experiments usually are not designed right to get you the, the answer you need. And, yeah. and, and so that's going on. Is, is that how you got connected to IONOS? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So, you know, I was in Michael's lab um, and Michael, I think you and Michael have been working too on, on liver, like from other situations. Um, and I mean, it was very novel at that time to me, the idea that like, okay, I'd finally learned that everything bad that's happening in HD is due to the expression of this one mutant gene. And it's, it's fortuitous. It's like you said, a whole horrible bad luck, you know, four of my siblings in, inherited it, two didn't. And it's, luck of the draw, it's 100% unfair luck. 
But if you don't have it, you don't get sick. And that really means that something like an ASO where you can lower levels of, of a given gene, in this case, of course, the mutant Huntington gene, it's such an obvious good idea and all the mouse trials have told us it's a good idea, et cetera. So watching that develop has been, you know, it's such an incredible joy for me. And, and that started very early on in my time when I was in the lab at UBC and got involved um, with a number of scientists from Ionis who were working in that program, including Frank Bennett, who um, was coming up to Vancouver and we were doing a lot of early mouse work to try to figure out how do you model this stuff in, in mouse models, which is which is how we how we do things in HD and um, got got involved very early on um, and then have have always stayed close to it. So I'm not a clinician, you know, a basic scientist, but as it kind of passed out of my grasp, I always wanted to stay involved with it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard for me to explain. I can't explain what it's like, what it was like and has been like for the HD community to watch the Huntington lowering, which is what we call this ASO approach of lowering the mutant gene. It's been like, I mean, every rare disease family knows that like the worst conceivable thing ever has happened to you. No one can help you. No one can change everything. Everyone's dying in these horrible ways. And then like, there's a glimmer of light that you didn't even know was possible that, yeah, this is horrible, but also maybe just maybe there's a way that you could like reduce the thing that's causing all this bad stuff. It's hard to explain to someone who hasn't been through that process. And as a community member watching that with, with Ionis, who, who really drove that, you know, there's other companies doing less established approaches now, but Ionis was really the pioneer there. I mean, it changed everything. It's still incurable. It's still, we can't change it yet. We'll get there. I believe it. But going from impossible to possible changes everything. And that that was such a joy to watch that develop. Yes. Hopelessness is a terrible state for a human being. Horrible. And one of the, one of the reasons I did in Lorem is the end of one patients are the most hopeless, most desperate, and and just providing hope um, um, is a big deal. And something like Huntington's uh, is something we can do. Right. There's never been any doubt in my mind that eventually we would be able to find a way to prevent the, the onset of symptoms and and do that safely. Yeah. I'm I'm absolutely confident that in due course that will get done. It just requires, you know, a lot of complicated clinical trials to figure out when to treat, what to measure, and 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 how to do that. Well and you're uh, doing something that's never well, I was gonna say it's never been done before, had never been done before, which is to cure a, you know, a neurodegenerative disease, which, you know, arguably spinal muscular atrophy was the first time in human history that we sort of turned the clock and, and cured someone who would have otherwise died of these terrible conditions. So I, I think we'll get there for HD too. I do too. And that is the joy of doing the things I've done for a lifetime now. Hmm. And um, so um, in Lorm, um, uh um, I'm interested in how you heard about NLARM and then uh, just walk folks through how you came to be associated with NLARM and, and, and what you do every day. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I can't remember if I heard from Michael uh, Hayden, my boss, who I know that you talked to at early stages about this, um, or Frank Bennett, um, you know, that, that was involved, uh, is involved as a CTO. 
um, who I still saw at HD meetings, but I, I had heard a kind of a rumor that in your in your semi-retirement, in quotes, uh, that you were going to start this this thing. And, you know, being in the situation I was where ASOs had offered such a huge lift to my community, like it just immediately drew me and I knew it was something I wanted to be involved with if, if I could. And um, so I basically followed Frank around uh, at, at a meeting where we were both at and sort of pestered him to sort of say, how can I help? How can I help? How can I get involved? And, you know, at that point, we were just uh, trying to kind of figure out the best way to vet each case um, or Frank and you and the other people involved were. And, and Frank brought me into that process again, as you said, you know, very early on. Um, and we sort of had to figure out from scratch about like, how do we screen each case? Because of course, each, not just each gene, but each mutation is its own case, its own challenges, its own possibilities. And as we've learned, even if we have another N. lorem case where there's someone with a mutation in that gene, another person with a mutation in that gene might not be eligible for for very good and, and robust reasons for an ASO treatment. And that was a really exciting puzzle to, that we're still figuring out and, and that I really wanted to be involved with. Um, and sometimes it's easy, which is great because you could say, yes, this is a dominant condition. And so, uh, and sometimes it's more complicated and, and, and it's been a real, real fun pleasure to be involved with that. So that takes place. So I, I'm part of a small group of people um, that help screen each submission. Um, and uh, so it involves Myself, who has backgrounds, basic scientists, fantastic clinician scientists that are both internal to NLORM as well as external advisors who are like world-class, amazing clinician scientists. And for each uh, submission, each of us basically does a deep dive, you know, a literature review. And there's, it's not like we can just go to the medical textbook and find the chapter on, <laughs> you know, th this incredibly rare mutation. Like we just, we have to dig into the scientific literature. We have to reach out to experts. Uh, we have to look into the mouse and worm and fly literature and see if there's any other like model organism data that can help drive our decisions. So it's a very iterative, very careful, very thoughtful process for each patient, even if we think we know that gene, you know, because each mutation may be different. Um, and ultimately, the output of that is that we put together a presentation for a group called the Access to Treatment Committee. Um, which in, which those of us who are doing those screening work that I mentioned sit on, but also a lot of external experts from outside and Lorem. Um, and we have uh, meetings every month for the Access to Treatment Committee, and we present our results. Uh, oftentimes, the Access to Treatment Committee says, that's great, sounds like you guys did your homework, yes or no, that you should, you should go ahead with the recommendation to treat that patient. Uh, uh, more than once they've said, oh, but you didn't think about this wrinkle that I know from my clinical practice in epilepsy of 20 years or whatever. And then we go back to the drawing board and we reincorporate those things. Um, and they've been a great also source of like, have you spoken to so-and-so? You know, I know someone who's the world expert on KCNQ2 seizures or something. And and so they also are a network and, and really everybody's doing their best, a lot of really smart people putting a lot of brain power into each case. It's, it's really satisfying, um, even when unfortunately, as is, as is going to have to be the case, you know, a given case may not be eligible for treatment for various, various reasons. It's not because we didn't, didn't try, you know. Every patient matters, and it's one patient at a time. So in that process, Jeff, um, if I if I forced you to tell me the three most important things you've learned, what would that be? Oh my goodness! 
Uh, <laughs> I am forcing it. <laughs> um, I think, I think we have we can learn a lot about genetics. We really have to understand exactly the genetics, and and, and more more generally, I mean like the mechanism of action, right? So, so. So the current way that we know that ASOs work best, you know, there there are certain types of genetic mutations that are more amenable to treatment. So understanding the mechanism of action is critical for a given mutation. As, as a sort of a side note to that, just because there's a paper that says something is a gain of function or loss of function hasn't always been the case when you really dive into it. And, and we've, we've had cases where we've had like multiple iterations where we've discovered whole new areas that we have to go kind of read and learn about to, to figure that out. So I would say the mechanism matters. Um, I would say that like, you know, the, 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 the speed and the progression of the symptoms matter. Maybe that's number two, because, uh, you know, again, I'm not a clinician. I defer to our, my clinical colleagues a lot, but, uh, you know, if, if we have someone with a very rapidly form, progressing form of ALS, for example, um, and, you know, we look at the timeline of trajectory of, of ASO development and someone's at the very, very end stage of their life. What's most important to me as a family member is not to raise false hope in people. Substantive hope, real hope is the most important thing in the world. False hope is the worst. <laughs> and, 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 and so if, if someone is one day away from dying of their condition, I don't want to tell their physician, yeah, I can make you an ASO in one day. That's just not feasible. So, so, we, so the state of the patient matters a lot. Um, and I would say that like maybe number three, like hope is a very powerful thing. And, and, I've been amazed at like, even when patients, when we can't, we think we can't help them with an ASO in the conversations with their families and their physicians, it's, it's been amazing the impact of feeling seen, you know, on, on those people who, who, even if the, even if we say, listen, this is not an ASO amenable case for, for this very good reason, unless you tell us otherwise, it's still, it, I think there's a gratefulness that really surprises me. And so like, I just, I'm amazed by the, by the impact of, of hope and attention uh, could have on someone's whole kind of sense of being, you know, it's um, yeah. Yeah. Our patients and parents are isolated mm -hmm. and they've spent years typically trying to find someone to listen to them and, uh, and to actually care. And uh, I think it's a combination of hope and caring, having someone else care about what happens to you and your family. Mm -hmm. um, so you're associated with NLARM like the rest of us because of the mission. Mm -hmm. And um, what would, in addition to learning the power of hope and learning the power of caring, what would you say the most gratifying part of this whole process is for you? Oh my goodness. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I've said a lot about hope, so I'll take off my patient advocate hat and I'll put on my scientist hat. I mean, on top of helping people, this is such fascinating stuff, right? I mean, we're doing it because it matters for these patients. That's, the motivation full stop but on the other side of that that like what we're learning as I'm, I'm a biologist and just like we're helping these people puts us at the cutting edge of like how mutations kill cells and how that leads to patterns of pathology that we call a disease and that is 
is so interesting and satisfying and motivating. And so it's like, it's a whole bonus payment on top of the like, we're doing this because we can give substantive hope to patients and their families. As a scientist, then I get to turn around and say, gosh, you know, I've just learned a whole new, every week I learn about a new disease and it's, it's so fascinating, you know, as a scientist. Um, and the fact that not only could we learn that stuff, but we could also help people who are in this situation. That's yeah. That's what gets me up. And as you know, I just submitted a couple of weeks ago our our first real data paper, uh, which which is uh, just a summary of the things that we learned from the first 173 patients that we dealt with. And um, I believe in the, that in the long run, what we're doing will change the way we think about health and disease altogether. And um, as as a scientist, it's it's thrilling to to think about what we're learning and how how taking advantage of these unique experiments of nature, which are single gene mutation patients, um, is is going to affect everything in medicine. Yeah, and it's 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 almost a way of like paying back, <laughs> paying back to pay to back to pay, but like rare disease patients, they're desperate because they're so unique, but what makes them unique teaches us a lot about the gene that's mutated in that person, which then maybe it's not the full cause of say Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but maybe like learning more about this really rare gene will help us better understand those more common things. And certainly we're going to learn more about how to use ASOs effectively in different disease states. And so it's in a way the rare disease patients pay us back by, by undergoing these treatments. And that has broader impact for for everyone's health, you know, in the future. Um, so I think that that reciprocal kind of feedback of like uh, trying to help these people because it's the right thing to do, full stop. And then we also learn all this amazing new stuff about how the body works and how to more effectively design treatments for everybody is, it's such a cool payoff. I love it. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, I guess I'll end by asking, um, well, maybe two questions. Uh, are you looking forward to being treated one of these days for your incipient Huntington syndrome? I I fully expect to. You know, I, I these these trials are happening. I, you know, I, I every rare disease family knows this. At some point, you have to n- not give up hope of like I'm going to cure myself or my kid, but like. If, if I woke up every day and was like, if I don't care myself and my siblings tomorrow, I'm going to lose my mind. Like th- that wouldn't be a healthy place to be. And so I, I, like a lot of families, I probably got into a kind of a, some kind of equanimity about myself, you know, like, I, I, cause otherwise I'd, I'd go crazy every day when things went wrong and things went right in the lab and in the clinic. But I, I fully expect to have treatments in my lifetime. And I think, I think it'll be something like HIV where, you know, the first treatments will be a big advance and then there'll be another one that uses a different thing that'll be a big advance and then we'll put them together and then someday no one will ever get Huntington's again. And I don't know if that's in my lifetime, but I don't care. Like, I I think it'll be better for me and it'll be much, much better for future generations. And that that's that's kind of where I'm at with that. Uh, anything I haven't asked that uh, I should have or anything that you want to say to to the folks who who face immediately the issues you worry about facing someday in the future? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess if I was going to communicate one thing, I, I hope, you know, that if, as I said, you know, because substantive hope is based on sometimes having to say no, I hope that if families do hear no from NLARM after submitting a case, I, I hope that if, if they listen to this, they would realize that it's after a lot of really smart people think really hard about it. And we're always happy to be wrong. And if and if new science comes out, we'll readdress it. But um, I just I really hope that leaves people with a sense that like, you know, we're on their side and and uh, we're fighting alongside them. And we're not, you know, we're not some faceless, you know, pharma company that they don't know. We're rare disease families trying to do our best for every patient that gets submitted. And, and I hope people I hope I hope as they get to know us, uh, people will, will, will realize that. Well, uh, this has been a very interesting conversation, Jeff. You've had, you know, an interesting life and interesting lives are always worth knowing about. And you have an interesting future. Um, And that I'm absolutely confident that an ASO is going to be in your future and and that will make your future better. I look forward to that for both you and for the broader community and for the joy of helping um so uh, thanks so much and uh, on behalf of all of our patients um you're one of the unsung heroes who actually work behind the scenes to do the things that must be done to help us decide whether we can help a patient or not and to do it the right way yeah thank you stan appreciate it it's a it's a it's a great joy and it's uh, it's it's fun for me to talk about it as well so thanks for taking the time And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope, and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening. <laughs>